0: If you'd open your Bibles to John chapter 3, John 3, in a moment we'll be looking at verses 16 and 17. John 3, 16 and 17. It's been a few weeks since we have... Ben, in our summer worship sermon series, I'll remind you of some of the ground we've covered, we saw that worship is important, worship is worthy of study for many reasons, but perhaps most importantly because it is formative. The scriptures describe how it is that we become like that that which we worship, and if we worship idols which are lifeless, we will become a lifeless people. And so we must know about worship so that we become the people we were created to be. Worship is formative. We saw that corporate worship, in particular, is a special time which is set aside so that through our our affections and our attitudes and our actions, we can demonstrate to God his worth. To us. We saw that the word, English word worship, is rooted in the idea of worthy ship. And so we gather to show God's worth in our lives through our affections and our actions in worship. We also saw that for worship to be true and authentic and biblical, it must be the worship of the one true God. For you shall have No other gods before me. We must worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the last Sunday that we were together in this series, we looked at the idea of worshiping simply because God is God. Because he is the Almighty. Because he is the Creator. Because he is who he is. You'll recall that we looked at this, this tour de force that God showed to Job. How he went through and pointed out to Job all the amazing things in creation and then said to Job, I made them. If those are that amazing, how much more amazing am I? We worship God simply because he is. God. Well, this morning we consider yet another reason to worship God as we look at his redemption. I hope you've picked up on that theme already. Our call to worship in Psalm 71 spoke of God as our Redeemer. Our Old Testament reading, Moses spoke of God as redeeming for himself a people. Our New Testament reading, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his Son to redeem those under the law. And we have sung of our uh, our Redeemer and Creator. We have talked about the one who provides mercies by which we are saved. So this morning I want us to consider what is undoubtedly the most famous verse, the most well-known verse in all the Bible. John 3, verse 16, and we will also be looking at verse 17 here at the Shore Harvest Presbyterian Church, we believe the Bible to be the only infallible rule for faith and for practice. And among other things, that means that if you want to know why we worship, then you must know this book. You must know the things contained in here. So hear now the inerrant word of Almighty God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Let's pray. Lord, this verse is amazing already in its clarity and its simplicity, and yet we do ask that you would reveal even more of it to us this morning. Through my words, let your word shine forth. Through my lips, let us hear your voice, that we would understand better what it is you have done for us in Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, and that we would worship you in, in fullness, in richness, in, in depth, because of that understanding. We pray this in his name. Amen. As I already mentioned it, as you know now, my father died a week ago, and his funeral was this past Wednesday. And as all of you understand, when such a thing happens in your life, it is a, a time of reflection. It's a time to, to look back and to think about The time you had with the person who has been lost. And for a child with their parent, much of that is a reflection on your childhood. Certainly my dad continued to be my dad after I moved out of the house, but I spent a lot less time with him after I moved out of the house. And so many of my memories were childhood memories. And many of them were very, very positive. But there were those other memories there, not so much that... Negative about my father, but but just difficult memories. So, for example, I can remember the, the fear, the trepidation of walking home from school when that report card was not up to snuff. When that report card wasn't what I knew it should have been, when I knew that report card was not going to measure up to my parents' expectations, and I would have to walk in the house, and usually the way that worked is I would... First, give it to mom. She was home when I got home. And then she would give it to dad when he got home from work. And then I would have to reap the rewards of what I had sown. There was a great deal of fear. Not necessarily because of anything wrong in my father or my parents, but just because I had done something wrong. A fear rooted in who I was and what I had Done. Undoubtedly, you've had experiences, whether it was report cards or you know, the horseplay in the, the, the family room that led to the broken vase or whatever, you have undoubtedly had that experience of having done something wrong and then having to live in the fear of the consequences for a time. You know, the Bible talks about that a great deal. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's in Psalm 111, exactly like that. Three different Proverbs have exactly that statement. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job, in Job 38, he takes out the words in the beginning, and he just simply says, the fear of the Lord is wisdom. Isaiah talks about how the the branch from the stump of Jesse, that's Jesus would live in the fear of the Lord. He would live in a proper relationship, a proper fear of the Lord. Micah talks about the fact that it is wisdom to fear the voice of the Lord. In the New Testament, we see Peter in Luke 5, during the miraculous catch of fish, when Peter gets a glimpse, when it dawns on him, that this rabbi he is following is no mere man. He is also God. Peter falls down on his knees in front of Jesus and says, Get away from me, I am a sinner. And of course, John, in the book of Revelation, when Jesus appears to him among the seven lampstands, has the same reaction. Fear. What is the source of all this fear of the Lord? It permeates the scriptures. Why? What's going on? We well, need only go back to the very beginning to see it, to understand where it came from. Genesis 3. And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh, God, among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said... I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. What follows in Genesis is an unfolding of what had happened. God begins to inquire, why were you afraid? And you boil it down, and the reason for their fear, the fear that existed then, that did not exist before, was because of their sin, They had sinned. They had done what was wrong. Like me bringing home that that unacceptable report card. They lived in fear because they had done what was wrong. God is to be feared because of his holy righteousness and because of our sin. It's the combination of those two that leads to fear. And of course, we see it in the, uh, if you were here this past spring with our study, the survey of the minor prophets, we saw in Hosea how God says he hates the Israelites as they live in a false religion and worship him uh, uh, in false ways because they do not properly fear him. For God to hate you is a terrifying thing. Micah warns us to walk humbly with our God. The author of Hebrews talks about the idea that without personal righteousness, no one will see God. There is this uh, reality that God is holy and he is righteous, and if you're going to be in relationship to him, you must be as well. Of course, Jesus himself said to his disciples, that their righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. They must be more righteous than the Pharisees. Our fear of God is rooted in our sinfulness and in our inherent understanding of His righteousness and holiness. We are afraid because we've done something wrong. We know that we have offended His righteous standard. Now, what happens when you have messed up and you are awaiting the consequences of that? We saw in the Minor Prophets that the coming of the Lord is a source of fear. The day of the Lord is a fearful day, the prophets tell us over and over again. Why? Because you are waiting for the consequences of what you've done. Like Adam in the garden, when God was coming, he was afraid. The minor prophets tell us, you know, the coming, the day of the Lord is a fearful day. You know, it's only the innocent who look forward to judgment with joy, with a light heart, apart from any fear. And all of us know we are not innocent. Imagine for a moment that you are one of the inspectors who examined the collapsed condo in Surfside, Florida. It's a fearful time. Everyone is coming after you. The news media is coming for you. The victims, the family members of the victims are going to be coming for you. Now imagine that you know, and I'm not saying this is the case, but imagine that you know that you cut corners. You know that you signed off on a structure that was not stable. What's it like right now? It is fearful. It is terrifying. You know the judgment is coming for you. Everyone is coming after you because you are guilty. You cannot hide behind a claim of ignorance or innocence. You know you cut the corners. You know you did what was wrong. So it is for sinners when God comes. There is fear. This is why Peter freaked out when he realized the deity of Jesus. So in our text here, we have Jesus uh, is teaching a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leader. He was an elder of the council, the Sanhedrin, um, in, in, in Jerusalem. And he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the biblical conservatives of their day. The Pharisees were those who tried to live. Many of them did so falsely, only outwardly. But the Pharisees were those who at least put on a show of trying to live righteous lives. And he was one of them. And he is talking to Jesus, and Jesus is explaining to him about the coming of God. And something astounding, and perhaps it should not have been astounding, perhaps it should not surprise us, but what Jesus says to Nicodemus actually is a little surprising. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The coming day of judgment is a terrible and awesome day, the prophets tell us. And then what does Jesus say to Nicodemus? God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's amazing. That God came to earth, God the Son came, not so that people would perish, but so that they would live. What does it go on to say? For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You know, it's ironic here. John is often referred to as the apostle of love, the evangelist of love. He talks a lot about love in his gospel and in his letters. But it is also interesting when you begin to study condemnation and you begin to study judgment and you begin to explore who is the judge of the world, who will send people to hell. Guess what? You're going to spend most of your time in the writings of John. It's ironic, that the apostle of love is also the one who tells us most about Jesus, the judge. Jesus, the one who condemns. It's in John 9 that we read Jesus himself saying, For judgment I came into the world. It's in the, the letters of John that we read about God's judgment against the antichrists and those who follow them. And it's in the revelation to John that we Read of the rider on the white horse who will come and destroy all the enemies of God. It is perhaps for that reason that John alone records this conversation on Jesus and Nicodemus. Only John tells us about this. And perhaps it's him trying to offset all of the discussion of judgment that he's written about. That he reveals us. You know, the passage we read, there's an interesting translation problem. Maybe you've heard of this, maybe you haven't. You see, here's the issue. The original biblical languages, whether it's the Hebrew of the Old Testament or the Greek of the New Testament, have no punctuation marks, none at all. There are no punctuation marks in the original Bible texts. So where does the quotation end? Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and I think every translation is agreed that verse 16 belongs to the lips of Jesus. It is part of the quote to Nicodemus. But there are many who would argue that at verse 17, we no longer have Jesus speaking. It's now John explaining what Jesus was teaching. And that's certainly a very reasonable possibility. We simply don't know who the speaker is at verse 17, whether it's Jesus or John. And the matter doesn't really uh, change things much, except that you might look at it and go, aha, John is trying to tell us what this is all about. And so John is saying, yes, yes, judgment is coming. Yes, Jesus is the judge. Yes, it is Jesus who will condemn all unbelievers to hell one day, but that's not why he came this time. You must understand God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order the world might be saved through Him. Now perhaps this should not have required quite so much explanation Whether it's Jesus explaining this to Nicodemus or John explaining it to us, either way, it probably didn't need so much explanation. After all, the story of humanity as it's recorded in the Bible, the highlights of human history that the biblical authors include are a a jumping from God's saving to God's saving to God's saving. They are chosen, of all the things that have happened in human history, the things that are included here are a a highlight of God's salvation. Even some surprising cases. Cain is protected from the consequences of his sin so that he can live out a full life. God does not make him suffer what he deserved to suffer. And when the inclination of every heart was only evil all the time in Genesis 6, God doesn't kill everyone as they deserve. He saves Noah and his children. Is because of how good they were? No. The first account we have after the flood is how Noah and his children are full of sin. They're a mess, like everyone else. But God chose to save them. And then we have the account, Genesis moves right from that into the account of Abraham. Because he was such a good guy. No! He was a pagan, worshiping idols in a a foreign land, and God elected him, chose him, called him, and saved him. What did Moses say? After they cross the Red Sea and they are on the dry ground on the other side, Moses sings his song in Exodus 15, and we read from our Old Testament reading this morning. He says, God, you have redeemed us, bought us out of slavery in Egypt, and set us free. In fact, we don't even need to live in the fear that they'll pursue us, for you have just drowned their army in the sea. We're truly free. It's an amazing account of God saving. And of course, what do we read through the judges? Time and again, the people would sin, and they would be under the oppression of the surrounding nations, and they would cry out to the Lord, and the Lord would save them. And when Goliath challenges the people of God, through the hand of a shepherd boy, God saves them. And when the Hittites come, and the Assyrians come, and the Babylonians come, time and again, God preserves for himself people, though they don't deserve it. And somehow, though, when Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus, that pattern of God saving people despite their sin seems lost on Nicodemus, and Jesus has to explain it to him. I did not come to condemn. I came to save. I came to redeem. Jesus himself, though, understood that message would be lost on his followers. He himself warns three times, Mark tells us, Three times Jesus warns his disciples before he even goes to Jerusalem. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. They're not going to understand what's happening, and so Jesus explains it. Jesus says to them, I came so that God could be reconciled to sinners. By the way, we do need to think of it and word it that way. We are not reconciled to God. God is reconciled to us. For reconciliation comes from saying, okay, I'm going to move forward. We're going to let the past go. We've got nothing in the past about God that we need to let go. We don't need to forgive him for anything. We don't need to let something slide. We don't need to look past God's past actions. We don't need to be reconciled to God. He is reconciled to us. How is that possible? There really are only three ways that can happen. Only three possible ways that God can be reconciled to sinners. One of those is that God can simply move the goalposts and declare victory. Just change the standard and say, okay, you met it. God can simply say, well, I guess, you know, all that gossiping and backstabbing and all those, that, in hindsight, I'm going to look back, I realize that's just, that's just a way of socialization. It, bond, it bonded you together. Gossiping was a way for you to come together. We'll, we'll let it go. One way to be reconciled to sinners is for God to change his, holy sta- his righteous standard. But God cannot do that. That is not an option for God. You ever think about the things God cannot do? For you and me, our limitations are almost never glorious. God's limitations are glorious. He cannot lie, the Bible tells us. Because he is so perfect in truthfulness. And God cannot change his righteous standard. His character is so pure, so righteous, so upstanding, that he cannot let sin go and pretend it wasn't sin. Though we may do that all the time, God cannot. So what's another way that God could be reconciled to us sinners? Well, he could simply say, well, yes, that's sin. Yes, what you did was wrong, but we're just going to let it slide. We're all going to be pals here. Come on, let's all just get together and, and let it go. But that would compromise his holiness. If changing the standard would compromise his righteousness, forgetting about the standard and just letting go of that and, and being with would, change, would 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 affect his holiness. God's holiness, his separateness, his set-aside-ness would have to be compromised. You know that God's holiness is the most repeated characteristic of God in the Scriptures. Of all the things God is said to be, holy is number one on the list. In fact, he is described as holy more often than the second and third attributes combined. He cannot set aside his holiness. He cannot just hang out with sinners like sin never happened. So what is to be done? How is a holy and a righteous God to be reconciled to sinners? Well, payment for the sin had to be made, atonement had to be offered, real righteousness had to be provided. And we read in Romans 3 how that happens. Turn over to Romans chapter 3. We'll begin in verse 23. Romans 3, beginning in verse 23. Romans three 23. We'll read down through verse 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There's that word, redemption, buying back whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood, by his blood, to be received by faith. Propitiation is not a word we use very often. It's the idea of uh, atonement, of making something right, of fixing it. Um, There can be propitiation for non-sin, you know, yeah, you hit a baseball through the neighbor's window. You, know, you really weren't sinning. You didn't do anything sinful, but you got to fix it. You got to make it right. You can simply say, I'm sorry and walk away, or you can replace the broken window. Propitiation is this idea of making it right. God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So, how were things made right? By the blood of Jesus to be received by faith. How, it's made right by Jesus' blood, it's applied to us. faith, This was to show God's righteousness. You see what's going on here? God cannot just let sin slide. He can't just sweep it under the carpet as though it didn't happen. His righteousness will not allow that. It's got to be paid for. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, at the time of Christ dying. So that he might... This is an amazing sentence. So that he might be just... He punishes sin. He is just. He is not a judge who lets things slide. He is just. So that he might be just and be the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' death, his blood poured out, his life given up, was the only way that God could reconcile himself to sinners. Thus it was that the payment could be made, a, a man, a human being, had to die for sin's payment but a human being of such phenomenal worth that his death could pay for all sinners and a human being of that worth is one who is also God thus it was that in the death of Jesus we are redeemed bought back bought out of our slavery to sin he is just sin has been punished and the justifier it's all okay an amazing sentence now we saw all those Old Testament examples of God redeeming people of buying them out of their sinful situations of preserving them despite their sin what is the pattern following each of those what comes after Them, What happens after Noah gets out of the ark? The first thing we read is that he built an altar and he worshipped. And what happens when Abraham arrives in the land of Canaan? He builds an altar and he worships. What happened on the other side of the Red Sea once the people were free? They stopped and worshipped. What did David do when God uh, saved him from Goliath? He wrote psalms and sang praises. He worshipped. When God spared Jerusalem from the Assyrians, what happened? King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, they worshipped. When Jesus cleansed the leper, what did the former leper do? He worshipped. When Jesus healed the blind beggar, what did the former blind beggar do? He worshiped. How much more should worship flow out of us who have been bought by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ? It's a true statement that going to church does not make you a Christian. Jesus himself said that many will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, Away from me, I never knew you. There are within the church those who are not saved. But the saved surely ought to be within the church. For how can it be that we would say, That was done for me. Jesus did that for me, but I don't want to go and praise him. I don't want to go and thank him. I don't want to bow in worship. I don't want to hear what he says I should do in obedience. I don't want to give a portion of my income to him as a sacrifice. I don't want to be among his people. I don't really like his people. If you have been bought, been redeemed by Jesus, if his work, if his blood has paid for you and saved you from the consequences of sin, then worship is the absolute minimum response. Worship ought to be automatic. Imagine for a moment a husband who has been forgiven much by his wife and then turns around and says, I don't want to spend time with you. All of us would look at that man and go, you are a cad. You don't understand that what that woman has gone through because of your sin and what she's had to do to offer you forgiveness and you're not going to spend time with her? Come on. We worship God because He is God, the Almighty, the Creator, the Sustainer, the Ruler of all things. But we also worship because a holy, And righteous God reconciled himself to us sinners by the sacrifice of his own son, Jesus Christ. Worship, for he is our redeemer. Lord, teach us to worship. Lead us into a desire to come into your presence and to be with you, to hear your voice, to sing your praises, to, to long to be a part of your body. It is in our sinfulness, it is in our uh, wickedness that we look at what you have done on the cross for us and shrug it off and say, I'd rather go, go golfing. I'd rather be anywhere other than in the church. please, Renew in us an understanding of what you have done for us in Jesus, our Redeemer. And as we understand that better, raise up within us a desire to sing loudly your praises, to declare boldly your gospel, to give generously to you through our offerings, to want to be in your presence in worship.